Hello, and welcome to the Rethinkers podcast. I'm your host, Karadina Kalin, and in this first episode, I talk to Sophia McRae about rethinking our approach to food. Food production is responsible for roughly 25% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and roughly a third of that stems from the raising of livestock and the farming of fish. It's therefore vital that we rethink our approach to food. In this episode, Sophia and I talk about her approach to veganism, meat alternatives, and why dietary schemes aren't the one silver bullet to fix our food systems. We also discuss social justice and our relationship to food. And Sophia gives us some recommendations or ideas for what a truly sustainable food system could look like. Sophia McRae is a German-American food advocate, vegan and sustainable food systems researcher based in Freiburg, Germany. She grew up in Rochester, New York, where she worked with urban farms and food pantries to improve access to fresh food and green spaces in the city. Currently, she's completing her master's degree in environmental governance at the University of Freiburg. So without further ado, I hope you will enjoy this first episode. We are here in Freiburg in Breisgau and it's a nice sunny Sunday morning. I'm a bit nervous because this is the first <laughs> podcast interview. So I guess that's separate thing. Thank you so much uh, for doing this with me, uh, Sophia. I really appreciate uh, you being willing to volunteer with me. Um, how are you feeling? Are you I'm also feeling nervous but excited. Uh, thanks for having me and congrats on starting the new podcast. Yeah, it's, thank you. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess let's roll and see uh, see how it goes. Um, so I know you're interested in sustainable food systems on a personal, academical, and professional level. Um, I think it would be great if you could maybe start by talking a bit about yourself and your interests uh, in food. Um, I'd be curious to hear how, how your interests in sustainable food systems initially came around and how they evolved over time. I'd also be curious to know how your personal, academical, and professional experiences have influenced each other. I've always been a bit food focused. I mean, I grew up cooking with my mom and by the early teenage years, my, my both of my parents were working a lot. So I was just sort of cooking for my family. And I realized that cooking was kind of the first real step that I had towards feeling a sense of independence, um, some empowerment, and also sort of the incredible expression of, of love and caretaking that food preparation can be for my family. But a little bit of family history, my, my mother is German, my father is American, uh, and my mom grew up in a strong farming community in Nordrhein-Westfalen. So they were in a relatively small village, and they raise about 400 bulls for meat. For a long time, they raised cows as well for milk. And visiting this farm as a child was always a place of joy and wonderment. I mean, I loved to go to each of the barns and have the, the calves sort of suckle on my hands. Um, and it was sort of a real place to connect with, with animals that weren't sort of dogs and cats. Of course, there was always some sadness there as well. Um, as a child, I didn't really know that much about the food system, of course. But I knew that these animals had sort of rich inner lives and were confined to their pens until they were eventually led to slaughter. Uh, my sister would also tease me about that, and my family knew I was kind of sensitive about it, so my grandma would never tell me who or what I was eating until after lunch. You know, <laughs> she'd say, ah, oh, that's Ophelia, your favorite cow. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> but there's a, there's a different kind of grief, I guess, when I go back to my family, because... You know, like I said, this is a really rich farming community, always has been. And every time I go, it feels like another neighbor or family farm has sold out or has had to consolidate. The only chance of survival for a lot of farms across uh, Europe and North America is basically get big or get out. 
And of course, this has major consequences for animal welfare, for environmental risk. It also takes a toll on the community, of course, to sort of lose that ability to be a, a thriving, functioning family farm. But I, I would say that I think my, my academic and professional interests were really launched in college. I got involved in urban farming initiatives in my city in Rochester, New York. Uh, I took a bunch of classes that kind of illuminated all the problems of our current corporate-run food system. And it sort of allowed me to put words and explanations to these phenomena that I was observing, not just with our family, but also in my communities as well. And it, it connected a lot of the dots between the plethora of issues that are encompassed by the food system. You know, I learned about what land grabbing was and the problems of soil depletion, diet-related diseases, and food apartheid in my city. What um, is food apartheid? So food apartheid is the structural disenfranchisement of certain communities that leads to um, a lack of access to healthy, affordable, culturally appropriate foods, largely in poor communities or low-income communities and communities of color. It used to be referred to as food deserts or food swamps, sort of seeing a lot of corner stores or fast food outlets as the only way to access food in certain communities. That term has kind of been sidelined because it naturalizes some of these issues when in fact they're very systemic and they have their roots in policy. So anyway, so, so this kind of like lit a fire in me, learning about these issues. Um, and I knew it was what I wanted to do. I see that food was sort of systemically and intentionally weaponized. But food has also had an incredible power for healing and for regeneration um, from our soils to our communities and everything in between. So it really inspired me and empowered me to try to create change in the same way that it empowered me when I first learned how to cook and, and how that could affect my family. So I started with urban agriculture because I decided that I wanted to start in the ground in my community in Rochester again. My city, a little bit of city history, it's a hyper-segregated city. One in two children in the city experiences food insecurity in their lifetime. Community level and intergenerational poverty is unfortunately rampant, and it's largely divided amongst communities of color um, versus white communities. Um, so urban ag, urban agriculture kind of emerged, like in a lot of Rust Belt cities, as a means of addressing a lot of these intersections of community disenfranchisement. So it addresses issues or tries to alleviate issues of structural racism, of environmental injustice, intersections of lack of access to healthcare, green space, education, all of these things. Um, and it really taught me also the importance of listening. You know, I think that was the first place to start of any of any change maker. And some of the most like intense creativity and solutions um, are really led by people who come from marginalized communities. So these these projects, these ideas, they need to be listened to. They need to be funded, importantly. <laughs> and I just kind of wanted to be a part of that, see how I could sort of facilitate the work that was already being done in my community. And that's what I did. I did that through college, uh, and then I did a year of service, voluntary service afterwards, uh, where I was working with an urban farm and a food pantry. And this was also in Rochester? This was also in Rochester, yeah. Um, it was an AmeriCorps VISTA project, if anybody knows AmeriCorps. And that was, that was an incredible experience. I really learned a lot, but I sort of wanted to learn a little bit more about these regional level or policy level solutions as well, because there is a certain amount of red tape and obstacles that you get to when you're trying to outscale solutions. If you're working in one city, it's amazing. I, but I, I also wanted to like learn a little bit more. So I came to Freiburg. <laughs> 
Um, it's the greenest city in Europe. I lived here from 18 to 19. That's where I became vegan. Um, and like Western New York, it has this incredible local farming community invested in sustainability. Uh, I mean, you, you, you know the culture here. Yeah. <laughs> and what did you do like in that one year? Uh, I was doing another year of service. I was working in a community with people, with adults with disabilities. Yeah. Um, and that was another, uh, I think, important step towards learning what it is to care for other people. They had a, a farm on site as well. So like interaction with um, horses and cows oh, and, and well, pigs okay. was also part of the yeah. therapy, which was um, really interesting. Yeah, so, so I came back, <laughs> and I'm doing right now a master's in environmental governance. Mm -hmm. uh, I am working sort of with a research assistantship project that can be loosely called sustainable food system governance in the Upper Rhine region. There's not just a focus on agriculture and consumerism, but also on all of the sort of intermediary players, the importance of mid-sized food distributors, outlets, processors, bakers, everything in between. Um, as important pieces of the puzzle for sustainability transitions in the food system. And that's been really great. That's kind of my new focus area. Yeah, okay, that sounds really exciting, yeah. Um, so you were talking about uh, how you became vegan when you moved to Freiburg. And if that's okay with you, I'd, I'd like to dive a bit deeper into your background and your motivations around food. So could you maybe <laughs> talk about uh, why you became vegan or how that journey started for you? Uh, and maybe also if your motivations have shifted over the years? Because I think I, I know with a lot of vegetarian friends of mine, like... Uh, They become vegetarian for one reason, but then maybe the reasons shift over time. And uh, yeah. I think that's really interesting, obviously. Yeah. And my God, I've been waiting for a platform, so I'm happy <laughs> to talk about this. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so next next month, it's going to be seven years since I've been vegan. And like I'm sure a lot of your friends, my veganism has changed so much. Yeah. <clears throat> I actually really sat down with myself this year and questioned myself um, in my veganism in its entirety. So um, like questioning whether you want to remain vegan? Exactly. Uh, or, yeah, yeah okay. I really thought like maybe this isn't the best thing yeah. for the world, for my body, for whatever. I ended up feeling sort of comfortably situated in my veganism. But I think sort of really questioning yourself is an important practice for anyone who subscribes to a philosophy. Yeah, I totally you know? agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> my mom says you can never be a total philosoph about anything because it either becomes so radical that you can't yeah, live anymore yeah. or you have to break your own rules yeah. and I think questioning is like a philosophical act in itself yeah, yeah and it's kind of what you're doing with this podcast project in a way too, yeah I know, you know yeah, sort of that's rethinking true. <laughs> some of the rules that we yeah. have sort of always believed yeah um But yeah, I was 18. It was the first time that I was really fully in charge of my grocery shopping, my food consumption. I had my own kitchen. I was in a place where it was really easy to be vegan. I mean, Southwest Germany, there was a huge amount of vegan culture, I should say. And for me, it felt like there was no reason not to. You know, I always had this in, like ethical or moral pull towards animal welfare issues. And I honestly, I didn't even know how to prepare meat anyways, because my mom was vegetarian. So becoming vegan was really easy for me. It felt like it ticked a lot of the boxes that I believed in, um, animal welfare, environmental issues. And, you know, I was never on a crusade. I was very clear with myself that I didn't want to, like, missionize and, and sort of try to convert other people because food is so much more than a political statement. Um, I knew that it worked for me, but I wanted to respect the choices of others, and I wanted to be able to sit down with people who still ate meat and not be... I mean, for lack of a better term, the asshole who's like, Ugh, I can't sit with you. You have yeah, meat on your plate, yeah, you know, because yeah. what 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 kind of connection is that? Yeah. You know, but if I if I'm going to be honest with myself, probably between the years of 18 and 20, I, I probably did silently judge people for eating yeah. meat. You know, I had this maybe moralistic high ground rebel yeah. without a cause a little bit. 
But, you know, I knew it worked for me. I felt great. I know it doesn't for a lot of people. And I mean, I would never tell my grandmother to change her diet. I mean, that's such an entitled position to have. And I actually don't believe that the world would be better off if everybody was vegan. Um, I don't think it's that silver bullet that a lot of people claim it to be. More than that, I do find a lot of forms of vegan activism to be really problematic. You know, I've, I consider veganism to be a nonviolent diet, but I think some methods of vegan activism is actually aggressive and based in shame or shock imagery or yeah. like moral judgment yeah. if you can still bite into a hamburger after eating. You're something a bad person. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I don't think that's the way towards dialogue, yeah. you know, and I don't think it's a holistic solution either. I think the nail in the coffin was this past summer I was listening to a local radio show in my city and there was a debate because there was this new law that was passed in California that basically said that pig farms had to allow an additional couple inches or foot of space or something just enough for pigs to be able to stand up turn around and lie down which right now pig cages are not um it's i mean it's it's cruel this is like the teeniest step forward in term in forms of animal liberation but i think only four percent of california pig farms were able to fall within this new regulation without forms of change so like this is our industry standard Anyway, this radio show hosted a local restaurateur who was a vegan restaurateur. So it means they visited like local uh, vegan restaurants? Yeah, like it, they had like a, a panel to discuss yeah, okay. these. Yeah. Um, they also had a local farmer who raises, I don't know, somewhere between 100 and 150 sows out on pasture, regenerative farms, small farmer, 20 minutes outside of the city. They also had like a local food distributor with whom I was actually working with at the time and I think an economist. And... You know, it's a, it's a really interesting debate, but what I found so disturbing was that this vegan chef, entrepreneur, was making all of these horrible moral judgments, including towards this farmer who knows his pigs and who knows animal behavior yeah. and really strives to be part of the solution. Yeah. And all of these callers were coming in and they were citing like the, the vegan statistics about how animal farming is bad for the environment and you know like i've read all the books i've seen the documentaries i know these statistics yeah. but they were just totally used out of context and their audience was completely wrong you know and i was just so uncomfortable with that yeah. that you know they were sort of targeting people who were trying to build and are building a really vital more sustainable um, regional food system yeah. in our city but because they involved animals in their farming system they were just completely cast out and judged. And I thought, like, what what form of solution is this, you know? So so I'm comfortable with my veganism now. Um, my palate has changed. I've tried eating cheese. I like I just it's it's not there for me anymore. Um, but I also know no one's going to take my vegan card away if I have one of my Oma's Christmas cookies that has, you know, by her standards, a little bit of butter. Yeah. You know, like the occasional <laughs> exception or. Yeah. Cheese, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important what you pointed out because I think uh, being tolerant and non-judgmental I think is really key, especially towards people who also try to come up with solutions because nothing's black and white, right? Like, uh, and there's so many shades uh, to everything that the, no one's got like the one solution. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like I do think that animals play a really important role in forms of sustainable and regenerative agriculture. Yeah. I don't think that we should be consuming meat at the rate that we are eating it right now, yeah. of course. I think plant-forward diets or plant-based diets are important parts of the change. But I think being able to have these conversations in terms that are not absolutist is a really important first step. And 
I guess I would put this out as a warning to anybody who ascribes to vegan diets or any form of diet that like we have to find a little bit of nuance, I think, and try not to be so hyper controlling and philosophical um, about what we deem is acceptable or not yeah. because the world is far far too complex yeah, for that yeah, i think yeah i totally agree yeah and uh, maybe here would be a good point to talk about um, other dietary approaches um to climate change and sustainability because uh, veganism is just one uh, one dietary approach right and then there's like uh, obviously everyone knows vegetarianism but then there's also local worrisome flexitarianism um, there's a zero waste movement mm -hmm. Etc. So maybe could you explain some of these approaches uh, for listeners who may not be familiar um, with all of them? Um, and maybe you could explain what the motivations and philosophies behind these diets are and kind of what the environmental issues uh, they try to tackle. Absolutely. So, yeah, veganism, vegetarianism, you know, it's about cutting animal products. And a lot of environmental debate around this is discussing how meat-heavy diets have twice as many carbon emissions as vegan diets. You know, there's there's a whole range of cross-cutting issues there. Um, flexitarianism, I've also heard it called plant forward. Um, it's a little less political. It actually plant makes me forward, laugh. Plant forward, I like because, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sort of, you know, we're, we're going to strive for plant-based diets, but it's okay to eat meat occasionally usually it's sort of with the intention of try to get free range grass-fed grass-finished whatever small farms um, being more intentional about the meat products that you consume side note my dad has a band called the flexitarian so every time i hear flexitarianism i have to think about like his. a music band yeah yeah <laughs> so cool. he arranges different musicians for every gig so they never have the same combination okay. And they play like songs that we might all know, but in completely different okay. styles. So there's like a pomp and circumstance and a swing theme. Yeah. You know, it's it's, oh, wow. cool. it's always very fun. <laughs> Anyhow, locavorism, that's really, you know, as the name suggests, really focusing on local foods, regional foods. Um, it's highly seasonal, usually by nature, um, especially if you live in a highly seasonal place. Sometimes there are going to be hard rules like you can only have a radius of 100 miles or, or whatever. Climatarianism, I actually had to look this up. I wasn't familiar with yeah, this. Okay. But there's, uh, <laughs> there's like a whole movement, although it's, it's a little less rigid. I mean, it, I think some of the hard rules are cutting beef and pork, um, but it's more of like a do what you can mentality. So it includes like trying to buy seasonal foods. Um, buying foods with limited packaging, uh, growing your own when you can, buying organic free range, etc. I think the naming is a, a little bit strange, but that's it's, it's a movement yeah. in and of itself. Yeah. Um, and then there's this organic whole foods diet that tries to sort of reduce or eliminate completely processed foods. And if it's organic, it takes away uh, inputs like pesticides or GMOs. Um, and I know just at least in the case of the U.S. and Germany, GMOs are really highly political. So this is kind of um, a movement like the no GMO label. Yeah, um, I think it's a political thing in a lot of regions. Yeah, and... yeah, it's quite controversial. And then the zero waste movement that's trying to reuse or compost food scraps in the form of animal consumption. I feel like it's talked about less, but it's sort of this idea of toe to tail consumption so that you're using all cuts of an animal and not just sort of the favorites. There's also trying to reduce packaging. You see these zero packaging stores coming up, buying in bulk, uh, the whole mason jar culture, the sort of hipster mason jar movement. That I think that's a real like Instagram uh, movement as well. <laughs> uh, and interestingly enough, it's very women, white woman heavy. Yeah, okay. um, what I've seen Interesting. a lot. Interesting, I didn't know that. <laughs> So, of course, these diets have different degrees of politicization um, and consideration for personal health as well as environmental impacts. So it kind of depends ultimately on the personal position. For example, a lot of vegans might not even refer to veganism as a diet, but actually as a lifestyle or a movement. 
um, and they'll incorporate it into their work or their purchasing be behavior way beyond food. Um, and then, like, clothes are often a thing for vegans. Clothes, most vegans, yeah, shoes, like, yeah. Doc Martens are vegan, you know. You might also find that uh, in Whole Foods diet, it has less emphasis on the environmental elements and more on focus on health and wellness, reducing inflammation, mm -hmm. reducing weight gain, things like that. And then for the, the really environmentally focused diets, they try to target different ways in which our food system impacts, usually in an exploitative way, mm -hmm. natural resources or our environment. So reducing food miles is about cutting emissions from food transport. Zero waste is, of course, targeting our material life cycles, which are used often, again, in excess for food transportation or storage and focuses on plastics a lot of times, as well as food waste. Mm -hmm. Food waste is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. But of course, these diets, like you can you can measure them to the same measuring stick and you'll get different results. It depends on what criteria you're looking at. Yeah. and. I think that's like the crux of sustainability is actually there's not really a way to define sustainability, more of like what sustainability is not. Yeah. <laughs> so carbon emissions are often conflated to how we measure sustainability, but it's way more complex than just carbon emissions. You know, I will say, though, for people, at least in Europe and North America, studies have shown that reducing meat and animal products have the biggest potential for redu reducing greenhouse gas emissions, as well as the consumption of water and energy and cutting specialty imported products that have really long supply chains like coffee and chocolate are also part of this sort of quote unquote sustainability diet. So, I mean, ultimately, there is this sort of common philosophy that our consumption habits matter with all of these diets, right? That we can leverage our purchasing power as individuals because the choices that we make matter, which, you know, when it comes to food, we make that maybe two or three times a day. Again, with these diets, there's this trend to create a very regimented list with boundaries and judgment calls that's sort of seen as a silver bullet. Like if you just cut out meat, then you're going to be living sustainably, or if you can just cut out this or whatever. And I, I think really a lot of these diets are kind of a way of dealing with like our climate guilt, especially mm -hmm. people who live in wealthier or more affluent consumer heavy cultures. And it also gives us a sense of agency or control when we're dealing with wicked problems like climate change. Uh, which I can really sympathize with. I mean, like ecological grief is a real thing. And yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. You know, it can yeah. be a therapy, of yeah. course. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's sort of growing. Like, I think I know more and more people who uh, struggle with the, with that to some extent. Hugely, hugely. It's like, how can I, how can I contribute drop in a bucket to this movement? You know, and food is a really easy way to do that. Um, but I, I mean, I think ambiguity in general is really hard for us to deal with. And so these diets each have their own theory of change and like their label of this is good and this is bad food to eat, which ascribes to some form of logic or philosophy. But of course, it's not without incredible critique, right? I mean, this notion of voting with your shopping cart, it's controversial and it can sort of, it's criticized for fostering this sort of neoliberal agenda. It's creating new markets to greenwash our consumptions and our food choices without actually changing the underlying power structures that result in, for example, our collective dependence on consolidated and hegemonic corporate food systems. I'm not saying that consumer habits aren't important because they are. They're important elements of societal transitions. But I don't think that we can expect it to be nearly enough to address the exploitative foundations of our food system. You know, like it can't just be bottom up with with just our consumption habits. Um, we as consumers can leverage a lot of power, but I think if all of us are vegan, it doesn't change issues of, of farm worker justice, for yeah. example. At the same time, I think that there's this 
idea that people also easily revert to where it's like, well, it's the system, the system's at fault, mm -hmm. you know, like there's nothing I can do about it anyways. And I, I think that's also too easy. And for me, frankly, it's very depressing. Like mm -hmm. I think it strips off of, of all of our agency. Yeah. And it makes us feel kind of powerless, I think, because exactly. then you're sort of like, well, yeah, everything is just going to uh, go down south. If it's the system and we can't change uh, the system. Exactly. And, and I think we're part of that. the system, right? Like, hugely, uh, hugely. Um, so like, I think my point is that when we're having conversations about our diet or our consumer behavior, we fall into this false dichotomy where it's like either individual consumerism or blaming the system mm -hmm. without actually changing anything else. And I, I think we really have to push beyond that because there's this like really important middle ground that has room for everybody where I think a lot of transformative change can happen yeah. um, and allow space for you know, bottom-up change to be incorporated into our dominant food systems or what we now consider our dominant food systems while also realizing the importance of like addressing these these meta-level issues that we're, that we're dealing with that also have their roots in climate change, of course. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important concept. What this middle ground could look like, that's something that I definitely want to dive into uh, with you later. But before we do that, there's one or two other things um, I'd kind of like to address to help uh, listeners understand uh, kind of the, the complexity of uh, these issues. So you mentioned uh, greenwashing before slightly, and I think that's for me, that's a very key term. You said for you, veganism is no silver bullet, yeah. right? And I think, uh, <laughs> I think that's a very important concept and kind of for me is in some ways, in some degrees, linked to greenwashing. So maybe could you explain what uh, greenwashing is for people who may not be uh, familiar with the term? Um, and then maybe explain sort of uh, how, what greenwashing looks like. Uh, one of the things you might be able to explain here is the difference between labels and certificates, because I think that's something that can be quite confusing for a lot of people. Hugely, so, uh, hugely. Yeah, I mean, um, I think first to comment on this silver bullet thing, because that's, that's already come up a couple of times. If it's not obvious yet, I don't believe in this concept yeah. of a silver bullet. Our lives and the systems we live in are just way too complex yeah. and multi-layered for any sort of one-size-fits-all copy-paste solution. Um, complexity, unfortunately or not, is our default. But greenwashing is this idea that companies, corporations, dominant power structures will label things as sustainable or market them as green products to show us like this is a sustainable path forward without actually having any sort of meaningful forms of sustainability uh, I don't know, action or monitoring. I th it's it's really just kind of a, a, a coat of green paint over an unchanged system. Because yeah, um, it can almost be sort of like an act of deception. Yeah. People end up thinking, oh, like this product I'm buying is actually really sustainable and environmentally friendly. Where exactly. Whereas it might address like one or two sort of criteria or issues, but not the... Hugely. Not others. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like the way that it, I think it impacts us very easily is with like going to the supermarket and seeing all of these sort of marketing gimmicks and green labels that all have competing claims. Um, and it's totally overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, it's even been referred to as label fatigue. Like it's it's a whole thing. There's a lot of people that are trying to study this. And I understand that that investing time into researching what each certification means and what each food product comes from, it's really unrealistic. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I love this stuff, but I don't do that. It's yeah. just simply it's simply overwhelming. Again, each country has different standards or different regulations for for their labeling. So 
things can mean differently in Switzerland than they do in Germany. Some terms <laughs> that I think are really easy to spot as like, I mean, bullshit for, for lack of a better term, would be things that are generally unregulated, like using the term green or natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in some cases that could indicate that there are no artificial flavorings or artificial ingredients, but largely, at least in the States, American companies can put that on their product with relative freedom. Yeah. Other things that are, I think, often very confusing is terms like cage-free for hens, like laying hens. Cage-free just basically means that they're not confined in individual teeny tiny cages, but they can still be packed into dark barns without access to sunlight, maybe yeah, one with window. with like sort of thousands of hens. In exactly. A, yeah. It does not mean that they spaces, are. Yeah. 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 They're not happy chickens. Yeah. You know, food certificates and certification schemes in general are a little bit different it's a huge trend i mean food certification and product certification in general it's a multi-billion dollar industry Mm -hmm. like consumer reports show that consumers especially younger consumers care more and more about where their products come from and for most of us that are not involved in forms of food production that like the certification is all that we have Right. Pretty reliable in labels. Like there are some that I think are more trustworthy. Those include things that are like organic or DeMeta certified, things that say certified humane or welfare, animal welfare certified um, and fair trade. Like these are easy labels that you know, Okay, there is a certain set of standards that this producer has to meet in order to get this label. But I think we have to recognize also the limitations of that. Like, again, it's not a silver bullet. Um, So like I said, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's ultimately kind of a voluntary effort. It's it's a way that sort of civil society, nonprofit and some private sector has tried to address the gaps that are lacking in our national and international food legislation. And it's a way to appeal to consumers that are feeling the weight of environmental and social responsibility. But again, it's it's greenwashing to a certain extent because it, it isn't rearranging our consumer relationships to our food producers. Um, and it's not a promise to lift farm workers out of poverty or to assure carbon neutral food systems. You can go to any of these certification schemes online. I mean, I know that's also a big effort, but you can see exactly what the standards are and how much farms will have to pay in order to get this label, which of course means that those who can afford to make these changes and get this label are already at an advantage. But fair trade doesn't necessarily assure that farm workers are getting payment that they need to survive it just means that they're maybe getting 40 cents more per hour or per bushel or whatever yeah i think that's a really important uh, concept i guess for consumers like if you buy something with a certificate you feel good about yourself but as you said it doesn't change uh, our relationship to food and i think that's really important the supply chain still remain really long and anonymous uh, for consumers so you don't actually know who's producing it or as you said uh, what is what that person's life actually looks like and how much they actually earn and I think there are some really great innovative um, social businesses, environmental businesses that are trying to address that. And what I will say for food certification schemes is that it it is responding to a consumer demand mm-hmm. that we want more transparent and more verifiable supply chains. So even though there are huge limitations to certification mm-hmm. schemes that we, we shouldn't be blind to, it is a movement that I can get behind yeah. because because it's, it's a tool right now for us. Yeah. And what a certificate means, I guess, like that can change over time as well. Like maybe like 20 years ago when we came up with certificates, uh, 
we maybe weren't as aware of the limitations. Maybe now as we sort of realize, oh, consumers actually want more transparency and they want uh, to know what they're buying. Uh, yeah, hugely. Maybe that will push certificates to become more meaningful uh, yeah, sort yeah. Of, uh, in the future. Or Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One other topic I'd like to dive into here, if that's okay with you, would be uh, meat substitutes. Because I think um, just like uh, certificates and labels, I think that's sort of like a really big hype at the moment. And I think in recent years, because there's been quite a demand uh, for plant-based foods, uh, I think uh, companies have been quite sort of diligently... coming up with the new plant-based foods uh, to provide uh, to consumers. And I know that there's plenty of plant-based meat substitutes or products based on um, soy or pea proteins, uh, that kind of stuff. And researchers are developing cell-based meat alternatives. And I guess personally, I do think that the more people switch to a plant-based diet, it's like the better for climate change but i guess personally i also have mixed feelings when it comes to so-called highly processed fake meats and i've read that from an environmental perspective um they not be as uh, beneficial as uh, companies like to claim or as you said before maybe also like <laughs> not the silver bullet i'm coming back to that so could you maybe talk about your take on meat alternatives yeah absolutely my god it's an interesting topic i mean i in the summer if we're grilling i will indulge in a vegan meat substitute i think that it depends again on by which criteria you're measuring these. I mean, they have been proven largely to be less carbon intensive than similar meat production. Like if you're gonna be comparing a soy chicken to you know a, a conventionally grown chicken or pork, um, obviously beef, like you'll get more sustainable standards. But again, like a lot of these foods are still highly processed. They come from factories and labs rather than farms. They still will rely on sort of conventional monocultural uh, commodity crops that are very problematic uh, around the world. But I don't think that it's it's not easy to make statement, I think, about all plant-based meats. Um, I know that in my town, Rochester, there is a plant-based butcher that just opened. And I think they do this sort of out of a sense of craft and artisanal production rather than this massive tofu factory. Mm-hmm. Similarly, like Typhoon Tofu, which is just down the street here in Freiburg, has a number of social and environmental sustainability standards that are really impressive and are kind of pushing the industry standard to make sure that they are produ- they are buying um, more regional, like Germany-based soy yeah. products, and I think ultimately are doing really important work. I have more to say actually about lab-grown meat, because I think that is a really fascinating technology that is coming and it's here to stay. Yeah. And that's um, the cell-based meats. That's right? the cell-based meat, yeah. So it's also known as in vitro meat production, but supporters and startups are actually more and more referring to it as cultured meat. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a little more appetizing than okay. in vitro meat. <laughs> and it also <laughs> relates back to fermented food products that we're already familiar with that have cultures in them like cheeses and yogurt. Cultured meat is actually not inherently a new phenomenon. Like growing and maintaining live tissue cultures has been researched for food for over a hundred years actually oh wow we didn't um, know that that's uh, yeah i mean it's it's, it starts more with like raising keeping alive uh, chicken heart yeah. tissues i think actually in like the 19 teens 
But this this trend of cultured meat has really been explored and developed as a novel food product in the last decade or two. And it's supported by food technology labs, research institutes um, around especially Europe, North America, China and Israel. I think they're sort of on the on the front runners of this. And there's a huge new wave of startup companies that are really pioneering this field as well. There's a lot at the root of cultured meat that is also quite similar to plant-based meat products. The idea basically is that it's addressing the huge number of environmental and public health challenges that are related to industrial animal agriculture. Um, so that's from like inefficient feed conversion ratios, meaning that you have to process a hundred pounds of soy for one pound of meat um, to animal welfare issues, the huge amounts of pollution resulting from animal farming. And of course, public health issues that are cropping up more and more like foodborne illness, chemical toxicants, antibiotic resistance, mm-hmm. Um, all resulting from poor processing practices. And cultured meats and plant-based meats are bypassing these problems basically because they don't need these inputs. Their process is radically different and they don't have the same potential for contamination. That's a much more sanitized project. But cultured meat, interestingly enough, it's, it's predicated on two major assumptions that I think can be problematized. And they're both about this like sort of unseemingly unchangeable consumer behavior. So um, first assumption is that consumer preferences for meat, especially in Western countries, but can be applied all over the world, um, is that it's just very central to to diets and it's associated with health benefits, cultural values, affluent lifestyles. So there's always going to be this sort of ceiling, if you think about it that way, that, that plant-based or plant-forward diets are always going to come up against um, because people just love meat. <laughs> and second, due to population growth and current demand rates for meat, people are only going to be consuming more and more meat in the future. You know, consumption for meat has tripled in the last four decades, and it's expected to more than double by 2050 to a total consumption of 470 million tons. There's a lot to break down in this argument, but that's kind of where plant-based meat is supposed to be, or cultured meat is supposed to be filling this, this gap. And when it comes to the sustainability of cultured meat production, again, it really depends on your criteria, but it shows mixed results right now. So in vitro meat or cultured meat is way less resource intensive and results in fewer forms of pollution than other forms of animal uh, agriculture. But the energy consumption uh, for labs that are growing meat is on par or higher than poultry or plant-based meat production. So that means that they're releasing more carbon dioxide and consuming more energy than other industry um, practices like like plant-based or like like or chicken. Like poultry, yeah. yeah, and I think that's important to know that like different types of meat have very different uh, emission rates. Hugely. Meat is not equal meat emissions. Um, and furthermore, carbon emissions are problematic if you're comparing it to methane emissions from uh, feedlots, for example, for bulls or for cows, because carbon has a much higher atmospheric lifespan. So it lingers in our atmosphere way longer than methane does. So it's also kind of hard to compare those two emissions. Cultured meat has fewer carbon mm-hmm. emissions, but it stays in the atmosphere yeah, for yeah, longer. Yeah, and atmospheric science is that's another like, <laughs> very complex topic on its own. Hugely, so, yeah. hugely. 
Um, so basically, if we're talking about sustainable cultured meat, it is still relying on a decarbonized energy system, which we don't have right now. Um, I think that we have to be careful about, about that. There's also challenging ethical arguments right now, because ironically, as far as the technology stands, cultured meat is not free of animal suffering, and therefore it's not free of its ethical dilemma. It still requires animal-based origin tissues uh, in order to grow, and, and scaffolding systems, which is part of the growth and generation processes. These tissues, these origin tissues, they're taken from fetal calves, unborn calves, after they slaughter the pregnant cows. So there is this still ethical dilemma and you could also argue that cultured meat continues to push the centrality of meat in our diet um, so there's the opportunity for a rebound effect which basically means that we think something is more sustainable so we consume more of it than we normally would and then end up having higher rates of carbon emissions um, electric vehicles are sometimes a good example of yeah. the rebound yeah i think effect. that's a very insightful uh, and important comment some other considerations that i think are less talked about but I think are still very important, is that cultured meat can have this impact if we're thinking about upscaling it to meet our current demands for meat. It has huge impact on broader debates around international food value chains, labor markets, global inequality. I mean, there's this trend to produce food in more urban, like closer to urban spaces and more modular units and closer to their areas of consumption. So cultured meat could be grown in these smaller labs closer to urban spaces, maybe based in Europe where they would be eaten. And so they would reduce or, you know, even in these extreme cases, eliminate imports from agriculture and meat producing countries that are really dependent on export markets. This industry shift could also push labor markets from rural to urban communities, from poorer to wealthier countries, and adversely impact rural livelihoods around the world. It could also affect workers in tangential industries that are also based on animal products that we don't usually think about when it comes to animal, inf uh, animal agriculture. For example, pet food, uh, gelatin, fertilizers, pharmaceuticals, glue, like all of these things use byproducts from animals. So there's a lot to it. I mean, there's even more, I guess, given the amount of land and resources that would be freed from producing feed for intensive agricultural production. Cultured meat could hold a potential for alleviating some of these problems, such as malnutrition, hunger, food insecurity, um, in what is known as the Global South. On the other hand, it could also negatively impact those countries and communities that are dependent on the revenue from um, export of commodity crops right now. And it could also have consequences for traditional animal husbandry practices um, or regenerative farming techniques that incorporate animal herds into their landscape design. And this seems to be a recurring point today, but I think it's also important that cultured meat could, again, reinforce our dependency on corporations for food production. And it sparks additional concerns over our ongoing losses of uh, food sovereignty and traditional foodways. So I think we should really be asking if in vitro meat can hold the same social and cultural significance and value as traditional meat raising and processing. And it's seen as a solution to industrial agriculture, but like a solution, not the solution, yeah. you know, um, and the sustainability of in vitro meat still remains questionable. And it's still dependent on this sort of green energy revolution that hasn't happened yet. But well, it's slowly happening, but uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> still has to pick up speed so <laughs> quite majorly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it also, I mean, right now the technology does have major obstacles to upscaling and becoming commercially viable. Um, and, 
you know, it's demonstrably less sustainable than plant-based meat options, which are only growing in popularity. They've also been put to the test with consumer studies, and there's a strong aversion from consumers to cultured meat products, which I totally understand. But these preferences, I think, are often treated as like, oh, these are consumers that just need to be convinced, you know, like we just need the right marketing. Um, and I think that we shouldn't be thinking of these of these preferences as just like something that can be easily swayed, but should be a sign of maybe a broader ethical problem um, when it comes to bioengineered foods. And there's still these unaddressed major questions about distributive justice and the profound social and ethical costs that relate to privatizing and patenting the building blocks of life, you know, for companies, corporations to own chicken growing processes, you know. So, so if it's not clear, I do have big problems with cultured meat, but the technology is here and it's not going anywhere. It's just going to become more refined and more efficient. Um, so I think just saying no is maybe my impulse, but I think that's still too easy. Um, and I, I think because the technology is in early development, there's a huge opportunity that we have to shape it. So I, I think having it really enter into political debates, discussions amongst research institutions, you know, having more humanities also in engineering fields could be yeah, one step. Yeah, maybe there can be like a space for cultured meats, but yeah. a proper space. And as you said, like we have to address many solutions. So I like I think we can maybe find that responsible niche where cultured meats can live. Um, and, you know, in the medical field, I think this technology has a lot of overlap with like producing organs for transplant and, and stuff. So I, I think that there, there is a lot of important use for this technology. I'm not saying we should throw it in the bin, but I think we should be careful yeah. about when it comes to like mass marketing food products to people. <laughs> I think it's really interesting what you just said earlier as well about how um, consumer aversion to cultured meats, how that's sort of treated as a marketing thing. Um, because in the beginning, you also talked about how one of the sort of underlying assumptions to producing cultured meat is that we can't change consumer preference for meat. But then if we sort of apply marketing to change consumer preference for cultured meats, uh, it sort of shows that, well, we can change consumer behavior. It might be trickier to change our preference for food than sort of producing uh, new food products. But maybe if we can change that, like uh, then we can change something very fundamental. I think that might be very, very sustainable in the long term. So I think that's a that's a key concept for me. So there's one more problem aspect that I'd like to talk about before we really dive into talking about what more holistic solutions uh, to fixing our food system could look like. And I think uh, for me, environmental issues are often quite tightly linked to social issues. And I think that's something that you've um, mentioned a, re a little bit in passing so far in the interview. I know, know that that's something that you're very passionate about. So maybe you could talk a bit more about the kind of the social issues linked to our food system yeah hugely i mean i don't think that we can even meaningfully address climate change without addressing the huge social inequality you know like climate change is already happening like the most disadvantaged people are the ones facing the brunt of climate change. Basically, what we are talking about is the concept of intersectionality. That term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 80s. And now I think it, maybe this is wishful thinking, but I think it's kind of the standard of practice for a lot of activist circles. Can you um, explain what it means? So the basic idea is that our macro level systems that are based on the logic of capitalism and colonialism, they overlap over certain political groups, certain ideas identities, and they result in compounded forms of discrimination or privileges. This is really dense, but like the, the logic of exploitation and extractivism that are rooted in the capitalistic drive 
to monetize and profit from the taking of natural resources um, are deeply connected to the exploitation of the bodies and the lives of those who perform the labor. So the project of colonialism results in multiple forms of supremacism, uh, such as white supremacism, male supremacism or patriarchy, and human supremacism. Um, and what do you mean maybe by colonialism here? Because I think for a lot of people, sort of, we think of colonialism as something that was like way back... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the... centuries ago, so how does that really relate to food uh, today? Yeah, I mean, the, the project of colonialism, we refer to forms of um, neocolonialism still happening today, but it's basically the European and white North American systemic drive to take over and extract the natural resources, the labor, from countries often in the global south for their own profit. And so like we, we still see that today when we're sort of relying on the labor that's performed by farm workers to do some of our most backbreaking labor for our food production. And basically the result of all of these sort of, of, of intersectionality intersectional oppression, I should say, is that the, the bodies of people of color, of women, of animals, and of the environment are similarly exploited uh, in the grab for resources and in the pursuit of profit. So, I mean, there's entire disciplines that are related to this concept, so it's, it's difficult to keep it concise, but intersectionality is at the heart of, of food justice. And that's where the limitations, I think, of dietary schemes are really shown, um, that they most just don't address food justice at all. So food justice is another form of it's, it's basically like the, the embodiment of intersectionality in the food system. Um, it's at its simplest. It recognizes the unequal distribution of risks and benefits from our food economy. Brief aside, I'm using the term food economy intentionally. Um, it's more complex and it's broader than the food system. So we, we recognize the food system as the core activities that are involved in the, the production, processing, distribution, consumption, waste management of food. But the food economy in incorporates all these supportive structures like the importance of regulation, uh, policy, education, financing, marketing, all of these things. And it also considers the roles of, of regional livelihoods and culture, joy, pleasure, all these things that are received from activities related to the food economy. Anyway, so, so to put some of food justice issues into more concrete terms, on the production side, I just mentioned it, farm worker justice is most oft discussed form of food injustices. Um, there are three million farm workers in the United States right now, about half of which are undocumented. That basically allows exploitation to be the standard of practice, unfortunately. Agricultural workers are exempt from federal labor laws in the United States, which means that farm workers who are already working the most strenuous jobs are the least protected from working conditions. Um, they work long hours in really hazardous conditions. They receive well below the federal minimum wage. And it's not uncommon for wages to also be withheld or stolen under the premise that farm workers uh, receive housing, which a term I'm also using very loosely in a lot of cases. And, and the list goes on uh, of the problems that farm workers are facing, which is not dissimilar to issues in Germany with farm workers from Eastern Europe. The legal, physical, uh, and cultural isolation of life in rural areas makes organizing and advocating for farm worker justice and rights really challenging. Farm workers who are women are extremely vulnerable to sexual harassment or assault. Uh, ironically, food insecurity is, is rampant, uh, as well as work-related illnesses from pesticide spraying, um, hazardous conditions. And due to the migration status, farm workers are commonly subject to threats or full-on cases of deportation. Um, they're sort of seen as like a 
unending source of, of yeah, sort cheap of like labor. a commodity that uh, you can sort of import or export uh, hugely, as any other hugely. rather than it's as human beings yeah uh, and there's this common retort that is used that i think is so inhumane which is oh well farm workers are getting paid more here than they would at home like we're giving them a, a we're giving them better pay than they would ever receive i mean it just furthers the exploitation it justifies their exploitation yeah. on the premises that a vulnerable group has no better options yeah. That's a huge problem on the consumer side, again, in the American context, but is a global issue, actually, is food apartheid and then food insecurity. And this Malthusian argument that we don't have enough food to feed the world's population and that we have to increase our intensive agricultural production because we have to feed nine billion people on this planet. I mean, for lack of a better term, it's it's garbage to me. <laughs> um, I mean, our, our problem is really in our resource distribution. Agricultural lands that were used for feeding local communities around the globe are turned into monocultural sites of production for, for corn, soy, and wheat that are all designed for export, and they're condensed into more inefficient uses like um, biofuel, meat, and highly produced foods probably processed foods. So this is all based on the premise of international development or development aid or uh, sustainable development, all of these like big keywords in the, in the UN. But ultimately, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar project that leaves agricultural communities dependent on international food products rather than producing food that is more culturally and ecologically appropriate for their local communities. So that's, that's like a global scale problem. I talked about food apartheid earlier in this podcast. But that is a big problem, especially in, in the United States. Convenience stores and fast food franchises provide natu- like nutritionally depleted and highly processed foods, um, and, it, and it leads to community-wide and inter- intergenerational food insecurity, malnutrition, and, and diet-related diseases. On the other side of intersectionality, there's some amazing work that's happening from community movements, activists, chefs, nonprofit agencies um, that's happening all around the world to address these problems through intersectional activism. And one of the first major moments of history of, of intersectional activism and collaboration, at least in the United States, um, is credited to the United Farm Workers Movement, which is largely composed of Latinx people. And at that time, it was, it was founded and was led by activists Dolores Huertas and Cesar Chavez. And they worked with the Black Panther Movement. Um, What's the Black Panther Movement? The Black Panther Movement was a... Black American Civil Rights Organization. And so they their form of collaboration between Latinx people, farm workers, and black communities really came about during the Great Pickers protest during the Civil Rights Movement. The Great Picker protest? Could you explain what that is? For yeah, people who may so, not be uh, um, familiar with U.S. history. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know that this is very specific, yeah. but it is a really interesting moment of history where the United Farm Workers were organizing around grape pickers' rights, basically in California, where they had these huge fields of, of grapevines. And grape picking is a very arduous process. It's very difficult. There's a, there's a lot of pesticide spraying. And they they started um, a movement for farm workers' rights, and it also involved like picketing supermarkets and black panthers actually came in and and worked together and they sort of had this great sort of symbiotic collaboration that legacy carries through to a lot of climate justice activists um now actually happening around the world um but i think it's it's really at the intersection again this word but sort of at the overlap of labor movements labor unions uh the rights of immigrants rights of black americans environmental justice issues 
and it's it's really quite powerful you know like the idea that you you know one movement alone can't stand to to address a system that is oppressing people and nature and whatever animals across sectors <laughs> so it, so it's not new but intersectional justice um, is the key i think to meaningfully addressing environmental problems and it really has to start with empowering and, and liberating people who face the brunt of climate change or we risk enforcing the same exploitive hierarchies in our solutions yeah, so one thing you've mentioned in the beginning here was that intersectionality, yeah, I guess it deals with sort of like the exploitation of natural resources, but then also of uh, humans. I'm wondering if there's any sort of products that we could be aware of uh, that are quite problematic uh, in this regard. Yeah, I think the list is huge. On this one, you know, bottled water is problematic. <laughs> you know, yeah, like obviously anything. it's complicated. As yeah. we um, <laughs> People haven't noticed things are complicated. <laughs> like, I think anything owned and operated by these corporate oligarchs like Nestle, Kellogg, General Mills, it's problematic. I mean, I don't know where to begin. These companies make their profits through these long, complex, anonymous supply chains that are based on monocultural production. They have huge government subsidies. They basically are reliant on cheap labor. And there's a whole range of social and environmental consequences from land grabbing, soil depletion, farm worker exploitation, you name it. But I think one really popular vegan food that deserves to be problematized is the avocado. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I really love avocado as much as the next person. But I think we have a tendency to overuse these sort of like superfoods or health foods yeah. that have to travel extremely long distances to folks like us in Germany. And I'm, even if you live in California, where a huge amount of avocados are grown, they're extremely water intensive um, and they're grown in drought ridden areas. Same with the almond, you know. And Mexican avocado cartels are a really big problem uh, as well. And they function similarly to the early days of the Italian mafia, which I'm not sure if a lot of people know this, but they started out in the lemon orchards. I did um, not so know they, that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really fascinating <laughs> it was new for me. Um, but they, you know, they use similar tactics of intimidation and threats of violence or vandalism or even kidnap and murder to control these extremely profitable industries. And so there, there was even this avocado ban um, in the U.S. earlier this year to try to address some of the problems of organized crime was uh, that an actual ban or was that like a movement uh no it was an actual ban yeah, okay. uh, it didn't it didn't last long though <laughs> But yeah, I think I think there's a there's actually like a Netflix mini series called Rotten that ha there's there's like a mini documentary about Mexican avocado cartels. Um, there's also like what is it? What did they call it? They call it wine terrorism in the south of France. There's like basically different food products that we know and love that are basically ubiquitous. That some of the some of the evils behind behind the production process are kind of exposed um, i think cocoa coffee sugar all of these things are are covered so it seems to me that sort of what you've been continuously pointing out to so far in the interview is that as you said there's no silver bullet and things are also not as simple as just replacing uh, problematic food products with uh, less problematic food products uh, and i think that really resonates for me because it's like the situation where it's unfortunate that things are so complicated and I think that that can be quite intimidating for a lot of people and because it makes us feel like uh, things are beyond our reach and it's not in our power to change things but I guess for me I think if we want to deal uh, with climate change uh, and all the other environmental issues that we're dealing with we have to face these complexities and I think we really have to try and understand them if we want to fix sort of everything uh, that's wrong 
Um, and I do, I guess I do very much believe that as a society, we can tackle this together and we are capable of coming up with more holistic uh, solutions uh, to a transition to more sustainable food systems. But I guess, of course, the big question is how we do, how? do yeah. that yeah. <laughs> and where do we start? Yeah. Um, so my question for you is, do you have any <laughs> inputs on what, how we could rethink our approach to food more holistically um, or any inputs on what a transition towards a truly sustainable food system could look like? Or I guess, in other words, if you could go completely wild in redesigning our food system, what are some of the <laughs> things that you'd like to see change? Oh, it's a really fun question. <laughs> uh, it's very intimidating. I mean, I think just to comment first, like I think the role of hope is really important just as like a fundamental baseline. I think it is not infrequent for me and for people all over the world who experience ecological grief. And it's so easy to say like, oh my God, I just have to give up. But I think the best coping mechanism for dealing with the complexity of climate change is like not giving up hope. And the complexity is not just something that really challenges us and puts up obstacles, but it also allows for a whole range of solutions to come to the forefront. Like we can be intensely creative um, and really sort of like the, this whole mantra of think globally, act locally. I know it's a cliche, but there's a lot of validity, I think, in that. So <laughs> I think adopting the fact that our, our food system should be hugely decentralized and more localized is a big starting point. And I think we have to re-embed our food practices into our regional and cultural landscapes. So from agriculture to processing and to consumption, I think it's really vital that we are more connected um, and have more control over our food production, our food economy. It's the idea of food sovereignty, basically, that our food practices are controlled and determined by the people involved, um, and that food provision can be culturally appropriate and flexible enough to deal with the real shocks and vulnerabilities that we have to be prepared for in the Anthropocene. Um, you know, like I think like flexibility and adaptability is, is huge. And I think a big part of that is also decommodifying our food, you know, like not treating it as this exchangeable good to be traded and speculated on and like market futures and whatever, but to see food as a fundamental human right and something that carries stories and cultures and identities with it. And that means that also communities can have ownership and decision-making power over what and how food gets produced and how it's valued. So in, in more concrete terms, uh, supply chains should be short, they should be transparent, um, relationships between actors should be close and, and value-based, and consumers can be reconnected to how and where their food is produced, um, and farmers can receive fair prices for their work, uh, which right now like seldom happens under, under a corporate food regime. Also, importantly, these relationships, you know, that's that's where all of our synergy, that's where real energy is. You know, nobody exists independently. It's the, the relationships that hold the real value. So these connections between farmers, distributors, processors, outlets, consumers, they're based on the idea of reciprocity uh, and trust and collaboration rather than competition. There's a whole range of literature, again, that sort of talks about this and discusses theories. They, they talk about shortened food supply chains or value food chains, alternative food networks, things like this. But I don't think that means that everything we have to eat is, is regional and seasonal. I mean, I think that's a huge part of it. 
just because we're problematizing these ideas doesn't mean that there's not a lot yeah, of validity in them. And yeah, I, I think exactly. we like we can't cancel them yeah. um, because it doesn't work everywhere. You know, so so organic and regenerative forms of agriculture, such as permaculture or intercropping, they're really important pieces of the puzzle. And they're really important, especially to maintain and promote soil health and to reduce dependency on industrial inputs. That's like... I think super urgent because we are rapidly running out of fertile agricultural soil if we continue farming the way that we are. But there's also like a huge range of, I guess you call them sustainability entrepreneurs that work in really creative ways to create new business models. So looking at uh, a business that doesn't have to have profit as its only form of value creation, but also centers social and environmental sustainability standards in its impacts generation. So there's even these new forms of international CSAs, which are community-supported agriculture. They can work in international supply chains. I think a lot of people think of CSAs as sort of highly regional, where consumers will buy shares of a farm crop at the beginning of the season so that the farmer has like guaranteed income, and then they might go and help out on the farm, and then they receive like weekly veggie boxes. There's a lot of different ways to organize it. But international forms of CSAs have come up for specialty crops like coffee or chocolate. These CSA managers, owners, whatever, they work very closely, both literally and figuratively, with growers to ensure that they receive fair and self-determined and guaranteed payment uh, from consumers who will buy shares. So these alternative business models are developed all over the world, and they're from extremely creative people, and I think they, they are changing the way that we're treating our food and how we treat each other when we conduct business. So I guess to try to deal with our individual consumption habits and, and going back to this personal diet question, um, I think there's a lot of factors that go into our personal decision making about our food, but everybody can sort of create their own parameters or preferences or restrictions because ultimately, like, who is being helped if we deprive ourselves from the pleasure of food? I don't think we should see food as just like a tool for our political or environmental activism. You know, food it's is, a source of joy as well. It brings people joy. together. Like we share meals. Hugely. So, yeah. yeah. Like every, every celebration we have across cultures, we share over yeah. a table, you know. And so I think we have to know what's good for, for ourselves, for our own bodies. That's the first step. You know, I, some can't tolerate a vegan diet, even with the access to all the best mm -hmm. foods, you know. Um, and others might live in a region where accessing a broad range of regionally produced food is, is challenging year round. And others might have caretaking responsibilities that reduce their flexibility. You know, like if you're a, a single mother or if you're taking care of a lot of people or whatever, like it's not easy always to be able to spend copious amounts of time and money and energy on your food. And, I, you know, I think a vegan diet that is heavy on highly processed foods and meat substitutes is not inherently more sustainable or more healthy than eating artisanally produced meat or cheeses from regional regenerative farms like we have in the Black Forest here. On the other hand, if you're eating locally produced salad from industrial greenhouses in Arizona where like they're sucking out all of the water from the Colorado River, it's not inherently more, more sustainable either just because it's local. Yeah. So I think responsible purchasing decisions are really based on your country, they're based on your region, your personal context, and it makes way more sense than sticking to some sort of regimented sustainability diet. And, and I deeply apologize if it's less straightforward, you know, but I, I think 
some things that people can think about maybe is supporting smaller or mid-sized farms, producers in your area to try to support local businesses and artisan productions. Places that advertise their supply chains are really fantastic for promoting transparency and also I think show that people really take pride in their craft. I think products like coffee or chocolate don't have to be off the table. And if they show on their label that they process their raw products in their country of origin, that is a huge deal to keep some wealth in the country. So they're not just exporting the commodity unrefined crop and then all of that wealth generation that happens in our very like capitalistic modes of production is up in, in, in Germany or New York or whatever. And again, like I think food shouldn't be rooted in fear. So I think it's also important to go easy on ourselves a little bit. Yeah, and to say, I absolutely agree. You know, yeah. it's okay to indulge. Like, yeah. you know, take a hot shower. It's an environmentalist yeah. guilty pleasure. Yeah. It's, it's okay. Yeah, and I think it's really important to be sort of tolerant uh, towards each other, but also towards ourselves. Change is never easy, I guess. And I think change is not like a sort of a very rigid uh, fixed thing but i see it more of a sort of fluid uh, or continuous learning process Hugely. yeah and it's and not I linear think, <laughs> yeah and i think it's like uh, we sort of have to be aware that it's okay to make mistakes because if we try to change something on a very fundamental level or as big as sort of like <laughs> the food system i think it's sort of quite clear that we will make mistakes down the road and that's okay as long as we are willing to sort of uh, reflect on our mistakes and learn from them and uh, i think that's a yeah. important yeah. yeah hugely hugely yeah. um i'd like to talk a bit more about what you, what you said regarding sort of relationships to food because i think that's for me quite a central thing i think that in our sort of fast-paced uh, society we are quite as, a, as consumers we are often quite far removed from food production so it's kind of easy to forget the that the foods we eat were uh, living uh, animals or uh, plants that are growing from living uh, soils um and you've talked about this uh, a bit already but maybe could you talk a bit more about what a more meaningful relationship to food looks like what that looks like to you and uh, maybe how sort of other individuals can try um, yeah. building up uh, or foster a better relationship uh, to food yeah yeah absolutely so i mean like just a brief note on what you're talking about like capitalism in our na in its nature separates consumers from producers. So it, it makes it easier to exploit laborers and it drives down prices, which is, of course, favorable to consumers, especially us as stressed, overworked consumers that are in need of convenience food and like immediate serotonin. But we've become really alienated from our food. We're super dependent on these corporate producers. Um, and so I think the point of food sovereignty can really um, illuminate what it is that you're talking about of having a more meaningful relationship to your food. Thinking about traditional food ways, food practices are a really great place to start. I think learning from uh, indigenous communities around the world, I think, can really teach us a, a lot about what it is to sort of be more connected to our food. And there's this organization in just outside of Rochester that I think really exemplifies this. It's called the White Corn Project. Uh, it is a nonprofit that stems from this place called Ganondagon. It's the most amazing place. It's a, a Haudenosaunee uh, arts and culture center uh, in upstate New York. And Haudenosaunee is the indigenous name for the Iroquois nations. And Rochester is on Seneca land. So that's one of the five, well, now six 
Haudenosaunee nations. Anyhow, the White Corn Project was started as a way to kind of revitalize the consumption and growing of traditional white corn, which was a major food staple for the Haudenosaunee people. And so the White Corn Project has been replanting fields of white corn and harvesting and processing using traditional practices and then selling it not only to people of indigenous ancestry or indigenous people, but also to educate the the broader public, should we say, about this food. You know, corn is part of the, the creation story for Haudenosaunee people. It's part of the Three Sisters, which is known as uh, corn, beans, and squash. They're companion plants. They all help each other to grow and to flourish. And I think that sort of idea of um, regeneration and reciprocity and collaboration to help grow and create healthy soils and healthy food is a really beautiful one. When we're thinking about our own food practices, it doesn't necessarily have to be so involved. But I think even like shopping at local farmers markets and trying to find some recipes or food practices that are based in your area, you know, like do something slow, like bake bread or ferment something uh, or learn a little bit about foraging. That was a big deal to me when I when I moved here as a way of sort of becoming local. What did you forage? Uh, I was foraging some purslane, a lot of nettles. I know we were talking about nettles earlier. There's a lot of burdock in the area, dandelion, cats, like all of these sort of mostly like herbaceous green plants. I know mushroom foraging is a huge culture in Black Forest that I have not gotten into that much. (laughs) You're more like a herbal. I'm I'm staying (laughs) to the plants, yeah, that I that I know, but I think but it's a learning process, you know, and it's a way of becoming local. It's a way of sort of learning about how the places around us can feed us and nourish us. And also figuring out how we can also contribute to that sort of natural well-being. I mean, also bellow, wild garlic. It's growing down in our garden. It's everywhere, oh, nice. uh, you know. Yeah. And um, it's the season soon. And yeah. it's the season. Yeah, and people are crazy about yeah. about wild garlic here. My God, like the wild garlic season is real. Yeah, is real. in Switzerland. <laughs> True. Yeah, it's like everyone's yeah. got their spot, you know. Um, it's so short. The season is so It's so short, yeah, and it's really special. Um, little PSA, if you're harvesting wild garlic, don't pull it up from the bulb because it takes seven years for the bulb to grow to actually grow wild garlic just cut it above the ground <laughs> i mean also starting a garden if you have space if you have a balcony if you have an outdoor space you know i think just like being curious um and if nothing else taking time to just like cook something um and find pleasure in connecting to some part of the process even if it's just the food the eating of it you know it doesn't have to be in the the grating of the cabbage you know but i think slowing down being intentional doing something either alone or with your family or your friends i think it's it's a great start if you are more politically minded you can think of that as a powerful act of resistance you know to decide to be slow and intentional and yeah and we were talking about ecological grief earlier and i think uh, sort of just doing something that takes action even if it's a small action i think that's huge for for hope and for feeling uh, mm-hmm. like it's sort of in your power to do something yeah. if it's something small i think yeah yeah exactly yeah. and like we really are what we eat you know we were also talking about being like wide-eyed and bushy-tailed when you're young and i remember learning about our microbiome in our gut yeah. for the first time and that was so mind-blowing and you know, it, it impacts your, your mental health, your psychological well-being. When Every time you eat, you're not actually feeding yourself, you're feeding your microbiome, which then serves you, delivers the nutrients that you need and helps your body to function. And I think consuming good food, healthy food, things that
that nourish you like is is way more powerful than we give it credit for you know um coming back full circle to something you said in the very beginning you've mentioned that community engagement and especially listening have taught you a lot and uh, you said that you've learned the important lesson that there is intense creativity in local spaces and i think that that's a very beautiful and hopeful message And I absolutely agree with you as well that we shouldn't just look at industry or research uh, for solutions because I think often the most creative ideas come from people who work directly on the ground and who just really care about helping their community or making a difference. Um, so I'm curious what some of the key lessons are that you've learned by engaging yourself in your community, either here in Freiburg or Rochester. Um, or maybe there's someone uh, or some particular people who have really inspired you uh, in your community. I think that this is so important and I'm so glad that you brought this up. I think like, you know, learning to listen, especially for people with privilege, is a lesson in humility and learning about different ways to know things and valuing different forms of knowledge. When I was working in my city, yes, I'm from that city. I grew up there. But as I said, we're highly segregated and there are different communities in every neighborhood. And so I think being a little bit humble and thinking, okay, I can contribute something to this process, but I actually don't have to be like the leader here. It's important to think, okay, what is already happening? What are our assets? Like, let's be solutions oriented. And who are the major players that are connected to other important players in, in the community, in the neighborhood? What gardens are already being grown? How can I nurture the soil or help? I think sort of learning where you're at first is a really important step. I think leadership is overrated, honestly. <laughs> I think knowing your strengths is good and being a leader in those strengths are, you know, it's fine. But I think also like trusting the process, like community work is very messy. Um, it's not linear. There's a lot of um, personalities, personal histories, identities that are sort of being thrown around. And I think respecting everybody where they're at. There's this amazing phrase in German, so jemand abzuholen, to pick up people where they're at, to meet people where they're at, I think is really important. And I think also just doing the brunt work, you know, sometimes you just have to weed, yeah. <laughs> you know, or water or do things that are not sexy, yeah. you know, you have to take time, you have to make sure that people feel heard and people feel like they're in a safe space to get involved. One of my bosses, um, when I was working as an AmeriCorps volunteer, she inspired me so much. She came to a church community as a priest, a church community that was really struggling, that was, you know, losing money fast, that didn't have a lot of support from the community. And she is like, she's the kind of person who is, like she was described in an article as, what was it, a blonde-haired, jeep-driving, hammer-yielding gay priest or something like that, you know? <laughs> she's just <laughs> Yeah, the biggest badass, you know? And she just got things done, you know? Um, and she has this incredible power to make people feel comforted I think that's like the priest part of her you know to like be able to really um like nurture and listen to people and you know if it means that they need immediate help she'll do that or she will like you know like host like she re she realized that the church is the, an amazing structural asset to the community and like how can we just use the space to welcome people and 
host community design projects or um, after school programs or tutor young people who need additional help. Yeah, so saying, well, you don't necessarily need to build a new structure completely yeah. from scratch if uh, like a church is already there. People go to church. Uh, yeah, why not exactly. use that as a space? Uh, yeah, yeah. To foster ideas. And yeah. it's, you know, it's so great because it's, um, I think, another, like, like when the pandemic hit, everybody was really uh, turned upside down and confused and scared and like you know we're not really out of it yet but thinking back to march 2020 is like kind of a crazy yeah. place and we had all these huge plans to design like a whole new like eden care center and like we were really on this path of long-term thinking mm -hmm. and then the pandemic hit and we we're like okay we just need to get food to people where they are at mm -hmm. and we were small enough to be flexible and we just turned our operations 180 degrees on their head and started doing driving deliveries to people and we were taking calls for hours every day um, to get people set up and people were mobilized because they felt like they had to do something you know and it was really empowering like like we were able to sort of create the structure on a dime you know to just meet people where they needed help the most at that point it was just food they just needed deliveries of groceries and that made such a big difference you know i i wasn't doing the all of the driving i was doing a lot of the phone maintenance and you know it was a lot of just like sitting at home you know <laughs> with my roommates that i've had since college like just like on the phone for hours but that was something and that made a big difference and like you could hear people you know on the other end saying like okay i just really need this like please thank you you know And so, like, I think doing bottom-up things, like, like everybody can play a niche if you find your niche and you're good at it, you know? Everybody has a role, I think, just yeah, like... And the, everybody's got something that they're yeah, good at. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, I, like, urban ag is something that really hits every box. You know, you, know, you need people who are really good at gardening, people who are great educators, and people who, like, we need engineers to help support, like, irrigation systems, you know? Like, we were able to work with college students, part of engineering groups or part of, um, I don't know, some sort of, like, uh, whatever, community outreach groups or whatever. Just people who wanted to get engaged and use their resources and their creativity for something important. And if you listen to what people are asking, then there's, like, this incredible potential for symbiosis. Actually. Yeah, I think that's a very beautiful and inspiring message. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> hey, thanks for asking. I've got one more last sort of real question, then I'll have a series of so short wrapping up oh, yeah. questions. So my last real question for you is, uh, so I guess for many people who want to eat more sustainably, I think it can be quite tricky uh, to transition to uh, eating a bit more sort of plant-based uh, mm -hmm. foods, etc. Um, so I'm wondering if there's anything that you have found personally challenging um, over the years with regards to being vegan, or maybe there are some common struggles uh, you've noticed amongst family members or friends. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd be curious to hear how you've handled these challenges or if you have any advice for listeners uh, who sort of want to transition towards a more sustainable yeah, diet. Yeah, hugely. So, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is just the issue of still participating fully in community celebrations, um, like part being able to participate fully in your relationships with your family or your friends because like we said food is really at the center of a lot of social events and so like for a while traveling to my family in germany was really challenging as a vegan because they didn't even understand what that was you know 
traveling to well anywhere but especially to places where it's more challenging to be vegan or to have specialized diets that was a big challenge for a while and and like of course there's also some struggles that I've heard from a lot of friends in terms of just being able to meet their nutritional needs mm-hmm. if they're they're cutting out things that serve as easy forms of of protein or calcium or b12 like cheeses and, and meats or iron or iron. I think for women that's often an issue mm-hmm. as well right? yeah hugely yeah without necessarily having to um, default to like supplements or something I think it, it is kind of important to realize that sometimes there are going to be moments where you're not in control of your diet and like you can hope that your friends or your family will be accommodating enough to know that like oh maybe you're not eating cheese or you're whatever I think you should really think twice about your decision making if you're cutting off relationships because you can't eat together. I think that's something that has personally affected me, not not like with my diet, but with diets of, of loved ones that make it kind of challenging to plan or vacation together. So I think not taking things so seriously sometimes, it's okay. And like, you know, if your food is based in control or fear, then that's not healthy. So think about that. But I think, you know, like connecting with communities that have similar um, eating habits or interests, going online, reading books, getting inspired, experimenting, hosting dinners, um, having fun and maintaining flexibility are all like important I think if you're going to be trying out new diets, like really listen to your body. Like we are so disconnected from our bodies. We have this false mind body. Yeah. And sort of like if you're sort of damaging your health because you're being too rigid, that's not serving you in the long term. And then it also won't serve uh, others or the planet. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't really help anybody else if you're not healthy and well, you know, and food, if you think about food as self-care, then you don't want to be too restrictive of things. Um, You want to sort of make sure that you're really nourishing yourself um, and your your little microbiome yeah. <laughs> yeah and sometimes it does take a little bit of education I mean like I like I said I was never a missionary vegan but it is interesting like when I started being vegan and then when I went to college and then I started living with my friends and then they started cooking or we started cooking together like just my decision making started to prompt discussions about our food and interest in food and then two of my friends became vegan from that um and I didn't I didn't plan for that to happen of course but like they were sort of seeing like oh yeah this also feels good you know and one of my friends she has a bad allergic reaction to nuts and to sesame and oh like, yeah it's hard <laughs> it's hard for <laughs> vegan yeah but then we we made it work you know yeah. like we had the sun butters like we experimented with different kinds of of milks yeah. and it was a really fun uh, sort of experiment for me it was kind of I think a, a empowering experience for her I think to be able to cook and make those decisions for herself um, that still worked around her allergies yeah I think that's some really really great advice yeah um yeah so from my perspective, I'm sort of through with the qu- with the main questions I've had. As I said, I have a few uh, closing up questions. And um, be- before I ask you those, I was wondering if there's anything you'd like to add, or if you feel like there's sort of a, a concept uh, we've forgotten that uh, you still want to address. Yeah. So I think you know maybe this 
encompasses some of our discussion today, but it, it brings us back to the beginning of our discussion where we were talking about how our personal and, and professional experiences kind of overlap. And I, I think with a lot of people who are working with food in any capacity, they tend to make it their whole life and it's their hobby and their profession and you know it takes up all their free time i don't think that we all have to do that in order to feel like we can engage meaningfully with food but i think if we step outside of this this box that we are just consumers if we're not engaged in food world at all can be quite a liberating experience you know like like in the kitchen in your home are also a food producer you can grow herbs in your kitchen window and, uh, you know, engage with, with food on the daily there. You can work with your children and teach them to develop a, a like, diverse palate. And even if you're, like, planning, if, if your mission in life takes you somewhere far away from the food system, like, food is still at the heart, I think, of what it, of what it is to be human. You know, food is the way that we engage with nature every single day. And we really literally take it into our bodies, consume it, metabolize it, and then, it, like, release it again to be renewed, you know? So I think, like, making partnerships with local processors for events or like making a, a trip to a farmer's market a whole experience can kind of be novel ways that you can introduce um, or collaborate with your local food economy and you're not just a consumer you know you're you're an active participant and I, th I think finding that little bit of empowerment in in our everyday is a form where we can take control <laughs> if we're dealing yeah, with the other I love that yeah, really <laughs> love that. yeah that's a very hopeful message I'm, I'm really glad that yeah. you brought that up um yeah so I guess I'll I'll go. I'll move on to my closing questions. So the first question I would have uh, for you is: uh, Are there any books or documentaries that you can recommend for listeners who want to mo learn more about uh, eating sustainably? Ooh, yeah, do I? Um, and uh, just for listeners, I will link these up uh, to the website, uh, yeah. to the podcast website, so you can find uh, those recommendations. Hmm. Okay. So I think if you want to start with informative books, nonfiction, but still things that are easy to read, histories of our food system um, or of intersectionality, food justice, a couple books that I could suggest. One would be A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism by Eric Holt Giminez. Leah Penniman's Farming While Black, I think, is an incredible book that everyone should read. Again, it's kind of, this This one is more U.S.-focused, but it really tells the story of black farming in the U.S., issues of access to land, everything from urban farming to realizing that land ownership is a key to liberation, like suggestions for recipes um, and anti-racist actions. It's a fantastic book. If you want to sort of dive more into what it is to eat animals from all kinds of different standpoints, I would suggest uh, Jonathan Safran Foer's Eating Animals. I will say it's not like a vegan or a vegetarian manifesto. He, as an author, is actually not vegan. Like, I think he has a really great, nuanced, real, grounded approach to considering um, what it is to consume animals. And then a scholar who I really uh, respect, her name is Julie Guthman. Um, she wrote uh, several books. One of them is called Weighing In. It's talking about sort of the social constructions around the obesity epidemic. I use epidemic in, in quotes, um, as well as a book that she co-wrote with Alison Hope Alkin called The New Food Activism. Um, it's a little bit more academic, but uh, I think touches on a lot of really interesting things. 
some some in Nusrat's salt fat acid heat is a fantastic cookbook and i think if you want to engage in making your own food that sort of philosophy of thinking about like the core elements or components of well-balanced meals um, and eating with pleasure uh, i think that's a really good one she also has like a mini series on netflix she's just also a joy she has a podcast called home cooking and i'm gonna be honest i haven't read this yet but it just came out and it's on my reading list it's called inflamed deep medicine and the anatomy of injustice and it's co-written by rupa myra and raj patel um raj patel is a really big well-respected um economist, food activist. Um, they're sort of talking about the links of food and systemic oppression to issues of, of health. Um, and then I guess there's one independent journal that I really love. Again, it's very U.S. focused, so I apologize, but it's called Civil Eats and they cover the whole world of food and food justice. And you can access two articles for free every month. Um, otherwise, it's like a $4 a month subscription, so it's not too bad. Um, and I think their coverage is really good. A documentary I really like about Dolores Huerta, the founder of the United Farm Workers Movement. Um, there's a documentary that's just called Dolores. It's about her and it's about the movement. Uh, and I think my last recommendation would be a podcast. It's really easy listening. I love listening to it when I travel. Um, it's called Gastropod. And it's by two journalists, Nicola Twilley and Cynthia Graber. They've been on for a while and they cover the history and science of food. So I think they do a really fantastic job um, if you're just listening, looking for, for interesting, informative, but still sort of light, light listening. Yeah, those seem like great recommendations. I have a li really long list <laughs> stack of books I don't know I'm meaning oh, to read, but I feel like <laughs> yeah. this might, uh, <laughs> might largen my stack. My God, I mean, oh, this is great. just scratch scratching the surface. Yeah. You know, there's so much good work out there. Yeah, but. Yeah. yeah. So my second to last question would be, uh, what do you enjoy doing when to take your mind off of things um, and to re-energize when you do feel overwhelmed by yeah. the climate crisis? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I cook. Uh, that's also my number one procrastination activity. <laughs> like, I still feel like I'm being productive. Um, yesterday, I woke up with a need for chocolate cake, and then I spent the entire afternoon creating this huge, ridiculous cake. Uh, I tasted <laughs> was delicious it yeah there's, there's like really a kilo of sugar i'm really feeling it really delicious yeah yeah it was my breakfast this morning which is not good but whatever um but i also i mean i i go to the woods um i do body work uh, like yoga or i go running which to me are very similar you know i like i I really believe that we store energy and our human experiences in our bodies and the best way to process that, especially when it comes to dealing with grief or trauma or negative or not negative, but, you know, like dark, darker feelings like sadness or anger or grief. The, the best way to work through that is through body work and um, and the woods. I think it's just like a really fantastic and regenerative space for me. It's where I do a lot of some of my best thinking. And my last question would be, uh, what inspires or motivates you the most to keep on working towards a better or more sustainable world? Uh, I think other people's work at that point, you know, like I, I, reading about what's happening, participating in community events, doing something nice for other people, you know, like falling in love with our world is the first step in wanting to make sure that it, it is protected and that it can regenerate for the next seven generations plus. Yeah, I think those are some very great and uh, inspiring 
closing remarks yeah. so yeah <laughs> so thank you so much sophia for uh, this wonderful interview i really enjoyed uh, our talk and hey, uh, me too. thank you so much for also for being willing to <laughs> experiment <laughs> with me on this hey my uh, pleasure i think this might be my new favorite podcast <laughs> <We'll see. laughs> you have to listen to it first <laughs> thank you for listening to the rethinkers podcast to see Sophia's recommendations, if you want to learn more about eating sustainably, you can visit the website www.rethinkerspodcast.ch. On the website, you'll also find further information on other episodes. And to stay informed about the release of new episodes, you can follow the Rethinkers podcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to recommend a topic or a guest, please do get in touch with me through my website. I would love to hear from you. So thank you again for listening and see you next time. Thank you.